Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. So, if you are a regular listener of this podcast, you might be aware of the fact that I get introduced to a lot of guests from other guests. And in this case, uh, Mark Marshall, who is a fantastic, wonderful person and the subject of this particular episode, I was introduced to him uh, via my friend Luke Wesley, who has been on this podcast twice and is also a wonderful human being. Wonderful human beings introduce other people to wonderful human beings. And uh, Mark is an amazing musician, plays multiple instruments, plays guitar, plays drums, uh, has an incredible musical mind, uh, far beyond my comprehension. And um, in addition to just being a tremendous musician, he is a professor, um, he is a composer, He is someone who has uh, grown up with a lot of challenges and has such a great attitude about all that stuff. And uh, he also hosts a podcast. Uh, He hosts a podcast called Anatomy of Tone. And we actually don't talk about that during this conversation, but we talk about so much more. Everything from, again, growing up with a disability um, to having a narcissistic parent to anxiety, uh, which uh, I am certainly well-versed on. So uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, Again, it is just a a warm conversation with a great person, and Mark is a super interesting guy. So, everybody, here is Mark Marshall. Okay. Well, I am... My name is Mark Marshall. I originally uh, am from a small town in northeastern Pennsylvania. It's a valley, and so there are a bunch of small towns that are connected to one another in a region. And there's a, a, sometimes a single border between towns. Uh, it's a big coal mining area. So like these little, I guess almost little towns are like little villages at one time. Uh, I spent a lot of time moving around between the, the little towns that were there when I was small. We didn't stay put for very long. In fact, in my Brooklyn apartment, it's the longest I've ever lived in, in one space. So oh, that wow. environment in Pennsylvania was kind of, um, it's a depressed area. The coal mining industry had fizzled out and uh, they didn't bring anything else in to stimulate the economy. And in 1972, they, they suffered a, a a flood, which devastated the area. It was just a complete disaster and it was connected to 
Agnes, which was a hurricane at the time. And it was a lot of blows for the area and the valley. And I think it's just, it never survived. Uh, so it was kind of in some ways a, a rough area uh, financially for a lot of people and education and, and a lot of those things can suffer there. Um, so I, I lived in, in several of the areas and, and, and I think experienced, uh, I guess, among the um, different uh, financial classes that were there of, of what life was like. Uh, I, I started as a musician pretty young. I started playing around with instruments when I was like five or six. I became very serious about playing musical instruments when I was about 13 or so. And um, I just really got deep into it. Living in Pennsylvania was challenging for me in a number of different reasons. My, I uh, grew up with some disabilities. I uh, am legally blind, which people will always ask about. It means I can see, but I can't see well enough to drive. If I'm standing on a street corner, it's hard for me to see the name of a street from across on the sign. So I have to hold books really close to my face. Uh, I made going to school challenging, um, communicating with people challenging. I was also born deaf in one ear. Uh, so there were some challenges living in an area where you couldn't really get anywhere by car. And as I got older, that became more and more challenging uh, in that area because I, I was very isolated and I didn't get to be around a lot of um, other musicians and, and such. And uh, it turned out that my home life w was um, rather challenging. I, I lived with a, a narcissist and who I didn't I didn't know what that term meant at the time or, or the serious effects that it can have. Um, so I was kind of trapped in this strange situation, but really wanting to study music more. And um, eventually, I, uh, uh, in my late 20s, I, I uh, reached a breaking point. I, I didn't go to college. I dropped out of high school. I got my equivalency of my GED and studied music at home, built a home studio. I learned how to play multiple instruments. I learned how to become a recording engineer. I got composition that eventually led me to. Um, I uh, I started learning just how to produce music and stuff. Um, and uh, I was working with my dad, who it was the problematic figure in the family, and that just reached a point where I had to get, turn on the the self survival button because I was just I had some sort of awareness that I was being destroyed in the situation, but I couldn't necessarily put my finger on it because I didn't know what a narcissist was. And he did a very good job of isolating me and my mom from other people. So it wasn't like I had a lot of contrast in being like, what's a normal uh, family situation look like? And this is somebody I was creatively working with. Uh, luckily, I eventually got around a couple of people that started saying something's not right, which hadn't never happened anywhere else in, in my life, not even from what I, who I considered my best friends at the time, right? Um, I eventually got into some local cover bands, and, and one of them was a very successful one. And I took the money from that, uh, and, uh, and this is like a three-year maybe process of me starting to get gigs and moving to New York City. I started making enough money, and one of the things I did is I came to New York City, and I didn't know anybody here. Uh, I came here cold. And just tried to start getting gigs, even when I was living in Pennsylvania, gigs at venues. And I, I early on, I, I just by chance, I met somebody who needed help with their guitar in a venue, and I helped them out. And we became really close friends, or close, close friends to this day. And she introduced me to Brooklyn, taught me a lot about about Brooklyn. 
I put a deposit on an apartment and um, I got out of my situation, which still took me years to understand the gravity of um, of the situation or even the gravity of like my disabilities or or what my um, you know prior life had had been like. Um, I came to New York City. I started finding work as a professional musician fairly quickly because I had a lot of experience. So I was able to start getting work as a side musician for people. Uh, I started working in recording studios and, and eventually just touring with a lot of artists and making records with people. And I met my wife, who was from the same area, actually. We didn't know each other in Pennsylvania, but we knew some of the same people. And, um, and so it was kind of funny that we had never crossed paths in that area. But then we met in Brooklyn, <laughs> in, uh, in Windsor Terrace, a place called the Crossroads Cafe. Um, so it was kind of strange that that happened. And we made a record together. And during the me- making of the record, we, we fell in love. It was a great disarming experience to get to know somebody and know them on a personal level without having your guards up, which you normally do when you're dating, you know, and you're you know, kind of letting so much information out. I think we really got to know each other and who we were. And, um, and through that time we started, we still make music together. We have a couple of projects that we work on together and we both also still work as uh, private teachers and, um, and um, musicians for other people as well as our own projects. And, um, through my time in New York, I've also expanded and I've become a composer for film and TV, um, as well as um, I'm now a professor at SUNY Purchase, which I teach uh, one day, thank you, one day a week up there uh, for that with um, master classes, which has really been an amazing experience. And uh, I teach at the Brooklyn Conservatory, and it's interesting because I never went to school for music, but I, I spend a lot of time being educated on music, I became really, really infatuated with learning. And I found some really amazing mentors, which really aligned well with my way of learning because of my disabilities. Um, and we've uh, but have a great apartment and we're, you know, we're pretty lucky to um, maybe not have a lot of the financial riches, but we have a lot of quality in our life of, of we're happy where we live. We have great friends. We have a great relationship, you know, inspire each other. And, you know, we're just trying to work and progress every day, you know? It's what makes you happy, right? Well, trying not to generalize the idea that financial wealth will make you happy is so common but is such a falsehood and even the fact that it's a falsehood is common uh, is common knowledge um there's such a strange disconnect between people who want quality of life and people who think that financial stability i mean and i do think financial stability brings you a certain level of comfort um but being rich i don't think makes you any happier than not being rich. I I don't have any knowledge of that. I've never been rich. <laughs> but um you look at the news and most rich people seem really uh miserable. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there are are things that add to quality of life that are not money that are as important or more important than money. Um but I'm already going on a tangent. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting topic, right? Because it's, that's what we're often raised to believe with 
this capitalistic infrastructure that, that we have, right? Is money makes your happiness more and more and more. And, and to some of that degree, I was raised on this philosophy of, of uh, fame and money being the, the determination of success. And, and so it took me a long time to, I think, reestablish what my actual relationship was with music and what success means. And I started working and being around people that were very successful like in the music industry like some were like music legends and and people on that caliber and and one thing that became clear was uh that 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 neither of those things the money or the the, the status necessarily meant happiness not to say all of them were unhappy but it was clearly like being that close to the inner circle was not just like oh this is utopia right this is where everything happens if you win a couple grammys and you're you're famous you know and it just it just wasn't that way at all and and uh, i really had to reassess i think what my relationship was with my art in that way you know right so you brought up so many things that i want to explore i almost don't know where to start but uh let, let's begin with your childhood and also becoming aware of the disabilities that, that, uh, you know, impact your life. I mean, you and I are about the same age and mm -hmm. I feel like probably in the late seventies and early eighties, people didn't have the skills or the language to deal with disability the way that people do now. Right. Very so much. Yeah, I'm just wondering what that experience was like for you. I mean, you did mention that it was very isolating, but uh, I guess from like a family perspective and then also from a peer perspective, what, what was it like? I, I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I would imagine that you would have just kind of felt like the odd guy out. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was strange on a couple of different perspectives looking back on. It, I think one of them is looking at the way the educational system dealt with it. And they just didn't know how to deal with it. They wanted to put me in, in specialized classes. My parents didn't want to do that. They wanted me to just kind of be in regular classes, which I can't really honestly say if that's right or wrong. Um, but the problem with some of the specialized classes, like sometimes I would go to a private tutor meeting or something, and they were trying to teach me how to lip read because I was deaf in one ear. Now, my hearing is almost perfect in my other ear, but it didn't really make a lot of sense to teach somebody who's legally blind how to <laughs> lip read. So it was just, <laughs> That just occurred to me. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's like, I mean, I could see if, if if we're sitting across from each other, I could see your lips, but it, it was it was hard, right? Because I'm part albino, and when I was younger, my hair was like like almost white, and my, I was a lot lighter skinned. Uh, so, and I, I have I have is my, my eyes are very sensitive to light, and uh, they have stigmatism; they can't focus, and and thus I'm legally blind. So, um, it just didn't help. You know what I mean? It was like, why am I here? So. It was they didn't know how to deal with it, and so in some essences they were they were trying to treat me like my condition was worse than it was, and other times they really couldn't figure out how to acclimate me. In school, they would always be like, "Well, you could come up and sit right next to the blackboard and and write your notes down." But who wants to do that in a class? I mean, wherever kids are, I think you end up around a lot of bullies anyway. Where I grew up, it was tough. I mean, kids were they were not very accepting of anybody that was different period. And, and also the times weren't very accepting. So already being very fair skinned, I already took a lot for, for being the odd person out. And 
on top of that, it was the eyesight thing. And if I had, so I, I would not end up moving myself closer if I couldn't see notes. And I think it affected my engagement with school and it affected my engagement with, um, with, you know, people, I think even eye contact, being able to communicate, take on visual uh, symbols, uh, signals from people, right? Like, mm. like when you're communicating with somebody, uh, I think a lot of that was challenging when I dropped out and I got my home diploma and I found out I did much better because I was, I liked reading literature and I was reading Graham Poe and Hemingway and it was like, wait a minute, I'm kind of enjoying education, but I didn't like it in that situation. I think some of it had to do with um, with the disabilities, uh, but it was kind of a strange time. I think they, I just didn't, I think one of the problems with public education is like, you're supposed to fit into a box, right? This person mm. goes into this box, this person goes in that box. And I think as we get more evolved, we realize that education and learning doesn't really work that way or not, not effectively. Uh, and so I think I struggled with that in, in the 80s and, and right up until um, you know high school. And it was challenging. I wonder if the issue then, and I don't have access to the public school system the way it is now, I wonder if the issue is that they tried to fit everybody into the same box as opposed to trying to fit everybody into different boxes. Yeah, they tried to. It's like, oh, if you have a disability, everybody goes in the disabled box. And if you're, quote, normal, then everybody goes in this box. Right, and they yes. really wished everybody fit together, you know what I mean? And, and then there's the normal class, which was a mixture of, of all kind of people that I don't even know if, what's normal anyway, right? It's just a weird uh, designation, but um, and and that was sort of the conveyor belt philosophy of of public school in the eighties and and seventies, eighties, and probably nineties, and maybe even to the same degree now, depending right. on where you are. Right, right, yeah. I think location, uh, geography has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um. I, so. I don't know if we even discussed this before. I'm assuming that there is an elder in your family. It might be your dad that is musical, and that's why you took to music from such a young age. Yeah, my dad is a is a musician. Um, I mean, I you know that's such a complicated situation. He was somebody that always wanted to be, I think, a famous musician, particularly a rock star. He was really fixated on that. Uh, so I was around music as a young age. Uh, he would gig a little bit and take me to nightclubs when I was small, like five or six. I was going to nightclubs and being around music, and and um, and I think I, I just became attracted to music. Uh, and at first, when I was younger, it wasn't really so much a toxic thing being around him. But he he eventually, I mean, there were things brewing there. Of course, I didn't know, but I didn't initially understand or visually take on the, the negative connotations of some of the behaviors but uh, as i got older his um his dysfunction with uh with music and and career uh, really kind of uh was uh bad but when i was young i was exposed to drums he's a drummer so i drums were my first instrument and what i started with and and then learned guitar and, and stuff so i was around music a lot from a, an early age and clearly your attraction to music sort of went beyond just it being introduced to you by a relative. Like you, it, it seems like it quickly went past you living someone else's dream and it becoming your dream, like becoming like the thing that you Mark were about, as opposed to just learning from your, your father in that respect. Yeah. I, I don't know what the term would be, but I've, I guess there's different people that have different levels of um, emotional sensitivity. And I think I'm kind of like a pincushion. I take on a lot. 
and um and i found music was a place to let that out and to, so a lot of times when i'm writing music i'm actually writing a, a feeling and if i have to create something that's similar to a genre of music one of the first things that allows me to do that is i try to tap into what the feeling of the music is and maybe what the person was feeling when they write it not directly the lyrics or the, the technical stuff which i also understand my first thing is just how does this make me feel how am i going to convey this feeling and so that seemed to be a good place for me because i definitely think i, I don't know if emotionally imbalanced isn't the right is the right word but i definitely like uh feel a, a lot you know i don't have thick skin and i think i found that that was just a, a good a good place for that you know and did that always come from playing music or did it come from listening to music as well? Being able to sense the feeling? Yeah. Um, or actually you being able to feel something yourself. It, it's a really blurry, like where there was, where that shifts because I think I was, I was listening to records and buying records when I was like five or something. And so I still remember hearing those songs and it, it evoking emotional experience of that time. And then I think pretty early on in my playing, I was able to adapt that into my playing. So I, I never remember it being a conscious thing. I just remember it being like a thing that was just always there. And and I think that was like the same thing with composition and stuff. I always, I somehow understood that I could just compose music. Like I didn't really understand why everybody couldn't. It was just like breathing air or something or, um, and because I didn't really have a contrast of, of it not being there, I learned how to do it. But somehow, even before I did it, like it, I seemed to like have a sense of um, awareness that I could do it. What's really interesting to me, I've always wished that I could compose music. Um, always wished that I had the ability to like compose lyrics or hear an original song in my head. And I can't. Um, so you saying that you thought that it was a quality that everybody had, I just kind of am circling back to myself and I'm like, man, that's a quality that I don't have, but I wish I did. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you were gigging pretty early. Um, I'm wondering if you always had the mindset of, I'm going to play until I get the fuck out of this place. No, because I didn't living in in the environment i was in I, I didn't know what a narcissist was i didn't really understand a lot of things about what toxic environments were like i didn't understand them until years after i was out i mean it was really my wife abby who really helped me understand a lot of that and really kind of she was the the bridge to me coming from that environment having a sense of i needed to get out but then really understanding of why I need to get out. So I, even when I got out, I didn't even know why I need to get out. I just, I just felt it. So I didn't know. Uh, but at one point I knew I had to. And so I started gigging more seriously up until that point. I was pretty cut off from people. I, when I was still in high school, I went to a few musical summer camps. But then when I started working with my dad, I was discouraged from doing that because we had to, you know, I had to stay in the home and be very like isolated. And, you know, it turned into a, um, I wouldn't call it a cult thing, but it was there's certain similarities to that kind of mindset of, of some of the stuff that was was happening. So it became a self survival thing eventually for me for me to get out, and then later on through therapy and diagnosis, it kind of started to understand like what was what was really going on. I, I was lucky I had that self protection circuit somewhere. 
some people are born with that button. Uh, I, I guess just for the sake of explanation, and even for my clarification, what is narcissism and how did that play out uh, in your life? Well, it's a complicated diagnosis, I think, that I'm still trying to understand. But for the particular situation I was in, it was um, it was somebody who everything had to revolve around them. Right? They could never be wrong. They would be right in, in no matter what. And sometimes their methods of doing it were via shaming or gaslighting. Um, it was the build you up, break you down kind of philosophy. So sometimes it would be like, you're, you're really great. And then other times it'd be like, you're, you're nothing. You know what I mean? Like you, you're, you'll never be anything, but, or never remembering things like arguments. Like I never said that. And you just be like completely oblivious to, uh, having ever said anything. There's usually a lot of emotional abuse that comes with that. Right. And, um, and, uh, and, tactics to make you feel dependent on them you know um and everything is um is is about them they they have to have full control of every situation um so it was a lot of that with the family stuff but it also became like that with the with the music stuff the controlling things and we could never finish a project for example because uh every time it would get close to it we would tear it down and and rip it apart again because he couldn't ever be secure with his own playing but then would blame me for it or we could never do a song that didn't have drums on it because that was the instrument he played so i could never write like an instrumental piece because it didn't you know what i mean it didn't have drums on it and i mean there's a long list of, of things that are a lot more sinister that got a lot darker but it was just a lot of um control and there was a lot of control of like isolating family like keeping family away right so it was very like no friends no family um negativity about every other single person in their life right like um ev everybody was was never good enough never better than they were right never uh, not anybody it was always trash talking about anybody loving your life so it became pretty distant from my grandparents and stuff like that it was a, a, a tool devised to a method devised to keep separated right you know um so yeah a lot of things like that uh the and that were were uh, pretty um, destructive, you know, emotionally, uh, and that that's a hard thing to track too because a lot of people don't see emotional abuse, right? So it's um, right. It's uh, it's uh, but it was it was uh, heavy a lot. Just the graphic nature of, of things that he would say sometimes were were pretty um, intense. You know, we're we would uh, we would have to move houses sometimes within like a few days. Like it would, we'd be like, okay, well, we have to move in a week, and we just moved to a completely different place, and like, you know, really? it's like, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was a little chaotic at times, you know, our our, our lives, you know. Uh, so there was a there was a lot. It was um, it was uh, very testing, I think, and and how he, once I started to become interested in music and natural to some degree, I believe that he saw me as being his ticket to the his dream. And so a lot of things kind of revolved around that um, of pressure and and belittling, just a lot of controlling things around that uh, and preaching. And, and what was interesting is when I came to New York, I had to relearn what I thought I knew about the music business because a lot of the things that were preached to me were not true at all. Like you really had 
no idea how the music business actually worked at all. But I, when I came to New York, you know, I was convinced that that was the way it worked. And right. it just didn't, from everything from going into a recording studio and working with artists and working with labels, all that stuff was like, was not at all. It was, it was sort of almost a story that he can talk about. It was almost like a story that he invented just to be able to give himself some security or something, you know, or, or to, to get, remain in power over me or other people. So I had to relearn a lot about life and, uh, and the business that I was, I was trying to professionally uh, dig into deeply, you know? Right. So moving ahead, you're, doing these gigs, you're in a band, you're doing all this stuff. What eventually brings you to New York? I always was fascinated with New York City. So I grew up on Sesame Street and also like watching TV and films in the 80s. New York City in the 80s, I was always fascinated with. Like It just seemed like the place for me for a number of different reasons. I didn't even fully comprehend that I at the time when I was younger that Maybe I'd have more liberties if I came here because of my disabilities. I was just attracted to the city life and the way it looked and the culture and the music here. I mean, I grew up in an area that was not culturally diverse, was very closed-minded. I think even from a younger age, I knew in myself that I wanted to be around more variety of people and interests and art and everything. And uh, New York obviously was the mecca for that, and I just loved the New York City aesthetic. You know, I came here like a couple of times when I was uh, once I hit twenty one. Some friends we came and spent a couple nights here. New York was just like as I imagined it. You know, loved it. It was still in the nineties <laughs> and amazing. So uh, I knew that that I would hopefully end up here someday. Then when I had to get out of my situation, I, I would come here like once or twice a month and I would just walk around all day and just try to get to know all of Manhattan and the neighborhoods and, and just kind of suss it out. So I just loved it. was It was peace of mind. I was able to get out of my house, which was just a not a good environment at all. And then the ability to take trains anywhere, anytime at night, take a cab, all of a sudden I, I was able to have somewhat of a normal life. You know, like I wasn't, um, I wasn't limited by my eyesight and then going out in Pennsylvania and wondering whoever drove how much they drank or mm. being worried about getting in a car with somebody or, or just not being able to get around. There weren't a lot of cabs back there and they were expensive and the cab drivers were kind of sketched back, back in Pennsylvania at that time too, before Uber, like you'd get a cab ride home. They were on some sort of drugs and that wasn't a viable option. So coming here and getting a taste of that was just like, there's not many places in the world like that, right? So New York, it was just like kind of like the perfect um, the perfect candidate to, for a place to go to. I was able to get to and from bus access so I could even get here on my own. And uh, so it was uh, that was that was what really brought me here and, and that sealed the deal. It's funny, every time you say something, I get like four other questions that pop up in my head. Um, <laughs> I guess so the two questions that I have in my head after what you just said is one, what was the actual breaking point that gave you the final push that you wanted to leave? And then the second question is, I'm a New Yorker, right? Like I've lived in New York basically my entire life. I am curious what it's like for an outsider, somebody who grew up in a completely different environment 
to not just kind of acclimate themselves to the city as like a resident, but just to sort of like slowly have this experience unfold in front of them that's so polar opposite to what their experience was as they were growing up. I, I feel like I barely know any people anymore who were born and raised here. So plenty of people are tra transplants, but I I'm wondering what the experience was like for you getting acclimated to the fact that New York is a very, very specific kind of place to live. Um, and if you come from a suburban environment, if you come from a rural environment, it's going to be definitive culture shock. Mm -hmm. Well, the breaking point was um, pretty intense for me. Like I, I had already through my experiences at home, I'm not really sure where they're coming from. Little, uh, developed severe panic and anxiety. Uh, and, so I'm not sure what of that is genetic, but definitely some of it was um, was uh, environmental, and uh, I they were really intense, and uh, I didn't receive any care for them. Part of the the mo of the environment I my in my was in was also like you know no doctors, right? So I never. I, it, it took me a while to kind of come to terms and understand what like panic was. Like the first time I had it, a, a panic attack, I thought I was dying. You know, it was intense. Even though my 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 dad did also have those, I still hadn't experienced it. Um, by the time that things got really bad in the house, I was I was I had a point where I was had a mixture of um of uh, anxiety and depression. I had had a, a girlfriend and uh, that was sort of involved in the, the music aspect of the time. It was just all around, a, not a good situation. And that kind of fizzled, but she was the first to sort of say like, Hey, things aren't right here, you know? And it started to connect some of the dots with me for some of the things I was feeling. Like I didn't still necessarily understand, but things were reaching a breaking point for me working with with him in that situation i didn't know if i was going to quit music period i was oh, so wow. like what do i do with my life I, I don't know if i can make music anymore i spent maybe like a week in bed and i was just drinking a lot and i'd reached this low point and i just and i and i i knew i couldn't continue on with the situation because the situation of making music in the house had become so toxic for me and so painful that I just didn't know what to do. And I, and it was like, I think for some people, they just would have walked away from all of it. And I wasn't sure if I was going to, but then I still felt somehow in there that music was beneficial to me and that it was the environment that I was in that wasn't. And I still felt I could be connected with music and not have it be tarnished by that. So I guess after that, that really dark period of going through that, I started that's when I started trying to find some people locally to play with because I knew I had to get out of that house a little bit and start playing with people. Well, and then then it just kind of kept building more in there and I started having more interactions with people and then it just kind of ramped into that like, you know, I don't exactly know what the final straw was because it was, it was a series of final straws, but I would say that particular week um, where I bottomed out, like where that was a major, major shift in, in my trajectory. That was a... It was, it was, it was survive or don't, you know, like it was that right. it was a kind of like turning point. Um, and so it took me a couple of years after that to get it all together. But that was that, that set the, the, uh, the wheels in motion. Uh, and my coming to New York city, I feel like was a different experience than it was for a lot of people. Cause I talked to a lot of people come here that come here and they, they say things too, like, Oh, it's such a polarizing experience. And it was not at all for me. Um, I came here and it was like I landed in home, 
you know it was oh. like it was it's like it was just this place of freedom and liberal minded people and and people that loved their craft you know and and were good at it i mean all of a sudden i was around like people who were at their highest level of their their field and it was mentally stimulating the freedom alone of being able to be in an apartment and just go out at night and hang out with friends and meet new people and come back home and i think because of the contrast of where i was coming from it was relief and it was salvation for me you know and i, I loved it i loved the subways i loved the nightclubs i loved the food i loved the pace i like you know, it helped my anxiety because a place that's constantly going 24 7 there's a lot of excitement like i my mind is always going like i don't relax very well so my <laughs> mind is always like buzzing so being in a place that always buzzes was just like this is great you know Right, right. And you've already said it a couple of times, but New York is a place that welcomes people who are, I, I, this is a loaded word and I'm not even sure I want to use it, that welcomes people who are outcasts. Like if you come from a small town or a suburban environment and you don't wear the same jeans or you have blue hair or you have a disability or you're a different ethnic mix or a different sexuality or whatever it is. The thing that I love about New York, and I don't know if I still realize it so much because again, this is where I'm from, mm -hmm. but this is a home for you. This is a place where people don't really care. I mean, not to say people don't care at all. People care a lot less about the thing that makes you stand out. And in yeah. a lot of cases, the thing that makes you stand out is celebrated. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I really liked that. Not only for myself, but I, I just liked being around people that were being themselves. Just that in itself felt liberating. It, it, it really is. I think I might take that for granted a little bit. Um, but hearing that perspective always makes me uh, appreciate a little bit more just the value of A, being able to disappear in a city this big. and be being able to find your people no matter what exactly your people are mm -hmm. like no matter how niche your thing is there's five other people in new york city who have the exact same niche absolutely yeah and that that was so fascinating to me and and i've taken advantage of that through a lot of my studies because i know like here and I'd, I'd seek people out and find people and see this if you into avant-garde music there's places that that focus on avant-garde music you can really find something of everybody and that wasn't where like that where i was from i mean i was i was the odd person out so we, it was a very white straight area and particularly being in the, the 70s and 80s it was it was very homophobic uh, and and I, I don't think in high school i knew anybody who was out nobody was outwardly gay i think because it would have been really difficult for that time but it was just really a rough time and so if you think of the narrow margin of people that you're around like my wife had a little bit of a different experience because of her family upbringing and stuff she she was around people that were a lot more open-minded than than were the areas that i were in which were a lot a lot tougher but um but it was it was um hard to to just be different you know right speaking of abby i this is bugging me out a little bit. The fact that you two grew up near each other and had friend overlap, but didn't meet until you were both in Brooklyn. 
Mm-hmm. How do you think that even happened? I'm a little older than she is, and she'll remind me of that frequently. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, we're not exactly in the same uh, class, but it turns out that one of the people that was in the band I was in, that one that really got me out of Pennsylvania that I was making good money from, knew Abby. And so there was a crossover there. So I, I lived down the street from her when she was born. I was probably already seven. Uh, and it's like, it, you know, it was one of those things. Her family owned a, a pretty well-known jewelry store in the area. So it was like, I knew the name and it was like, it was such an odd thing. But the thing about Pennsylvania in that particular area at the time, and I think it's changing a little bit now due to some of the, some of the people that are there now and the younger generation being more like mindful, it was, it wasn't very inclusive with the arts. It was very like, you're on that side. I'm on this side. Like you're in that band. We don't talk to people that are in that other band. It was um very closed off that way. And she wasn't and her family's not, but she was more in the folk scene and I wasn't really in that scene. And, I had limitation to going out and seeing a lot of new music because of my disability. So mm. the only time I met people was like if I was playing a gig and there wasn't too many times it was more than one band on a gig back there. So uh, we were sort of like ships passing in the night. You know what I mean? It was uh, it was there. And when I moved to New York, we moved to New York one month apart from each other in the same year. <laughs> uh, um, a friend of mine in the band that Bob Lewis, who introduced us, he was like, oh, my friend Abby just moved to New York. I think you two would get along. She's a songwriter. And I'm age 30. It took me a lot to get out of Pennsylvania. I was just like, I'm not interested in anybody that's from that town right now. You know what I mean? I'm in New York. I'm here. And he was like, no, no, she's really, she's really good. And it was the level back there at that time was not like I, I wanted more. I, I need to be challenged more by people uh, who were who have achieved more in their their abilities musically, and so there was part of me of knowing that the history of the place. I was just like, no. And finally, I caved. I, I went to back home to visit, and I saw her poster at a, at a record shop, and I was like, huh, all right, I'll check her out. And then I checked her out. She had moved to Pittsburgh and went to college in Pittsburgh, and I checked her out, and she was really legit. Like she was a great guitarist, a great songwriter, a great singer, and I was like, huh. Okay. <laughs> and so she likes to tell that story that I, I refused to contact her for a little while. Because <laughs> but I but I finally did and then I was I was of course highly impressed because she's she's she was she's the real deal, you know. And so um that's how we met, you know. And that there's a level you know, it feels fortuitous in a way or serendipitous, or I'm not sure what the word is I'm looking for, one of those things. Um I mean I do think some things happen for a reason, but given where you two came from, it feel there feels like a, a like a destiny involved there. Yeah, I, I so, feel that way too. Yeah, that's awesome. So, given all that you've experienced, how do you then make sense of that and move forward and don't let the negative experiences that you've had over the course of your life define the person you are now and moving forward. Uh, It's been challenging. I think uh, the first step was me understanding what I went through. And so a lot of therapy and support. I don't know if I would have achieved any of these things without Abby. And she, I think just, she tended to see always what's inside of me rather than 
what I had gone through and the effects of it. And so I think she was very persistent in her support and, and helping me get into therapy and work a lot of that stuff out to, uh, to truly understand what I had been through. I didn't even know what emotional abuse was. So it took a lot of that to, to be able to recognize and say, this is what happened to me. Uh, and then from there on out, I think it was just years of then um, trying to, to deal with the anxiety and panic, but then realizing who I really am inside and mm. to, to try to like observe because I, the last thing I want to do is repeat those scenarios or those experiences I, I went through. But of course, going through them sometimes for that long of a period of time in such isolation, some of these things start to feel natural because you don't have any counter experiences. So there's been a bit of me needing to reprogram myself to uh, not act or react certain ways just based on on repeated experience I've had. So I've had to really look at myself and just be like, well, who who do I want to be and who am I really inside and, and break down the shell a bit and sort of relearn maybe habits or how to deal with situations or uh, so I'm just trying to to research and talk to therapists and other people and read books about how to just be a, a better person in a lot of regards or not to repeat the same behaviors. Um, and it's an ongoing process. I feel like I feel like I, I uh, there's a lot of work to be done, and and it is work because it's it's also acceptance of um, realizing that well you, you you've done wrong yourself and. Instead of being stubborn or, or, or egotistical about it or narcissistic about it, accepting that that you make mistakes and that you can move on, you know. Um, I strangely enough think a lot of that came through. I've been working on this for years, but like during the pandemic, I really started studying classical composition and music harmony. Although I've studied music for a long time, I really got into writing for chamber orchestra and things of that nature and and like true classical harmony and i really started getting very deliberate about my research and all forms of music and got into like learning and it, it became a thrill uh, and i think through that learning how to learn and how to research i think made me realize too well i don't just have to do this for classical counterpoint or avant-garde atonal composition i can do this for thinking about how I can maybe get better at networking with people. I wasn't ever good at being social because I was hardly around people for the longest time. Sure. And uh, I had to just learn mostly by coming to New York and, and still there's things I'm not good at because of that. And also thinking like, well, maybe there's better ways that I'm, I can diffuse situations or um, yeah, it's been a lot of things like that. Just willingness, I think to want to change and, and, and put the time in to, to do it. But I think having a support system like Abby and, and a therapist has, has been uh, revolutionary, you know, was the finding a therapist, a decision that you made, or was it something that you uh, made with the help of people who suggested it to you? It was suggested. I, I wasn't, on, on, into the idea because I think I was still coming from the stigma of that and I, and I never received help all the other years when I was having panic attacks and stuff like that so I thought like well you know that's that's something I just do on my own you know but um but you know there's a point where you can't do it on your own and, and there's just there was things I was never going to understand without it so Abby was persistent about it 
Um, and eventually, because I trust her so much, uh, and I think she since I was I was in a lot of pain, and I was really lucky. Um, I found an, a, a phenomenal therapist that, that really has helped change my life. So that was um, a big thing. But uh, but yeah, Abby, Abby was you know the the turning point. You know, man, it's so good to have people in your corner that lead you in the right direction, and obviously. If you're helping out somebody that you care about, there is some level of self-interest in play there. But it really seems like this was a situation of, I love this guy. I want him to get better for himself. Exactly. And and that, that's one of the, the, the core things I, I fell in love with her about. There's a numerous things, but one of them was she's um, she's genuine. You know, some, some people put on like a... Um, I wouldn't say a costume, but they put on a bit of a character when they meet other people because this is my social person. This is who I am behind closed doors. But Abby is just really genuinely herself. And that, that genuine person that she is is also a person that really, really cares about her friends. Like if you're her friends or you're her family, like she's she's got your back in, in a very deep level and just really is 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 checking in and, and aware of, of that stuff. And, and um, yeah, it's it's a, an incredible quality to, for a person to have, you know, and uh, an incredible for me to have landed in that situation, you know, be lucky. Hey, not found, not a bad her. thing. Yeah. Has there been any acknowledgement or any kind of uh, reproachment with your, your blood relatives at all? I'm very disconnected from my family. I cut him off a number of years ago. My mom, I finally got out of that situation in order for that to happen I knew those ties had to be severed so I did and it was it was toxic anyway and so she finally got out because she was also in a bad situation uh so I keep in touch with her we're very close um and um and on my mom's side I still talk to a couple of relatives there my <laughs> uncle and on my dad's side I don't almost talk to anybody his side of the family is is um is is very dysfunctional uh, i'm not really particularly close with too many people in my family because of the, the gap that was created for all those years of my dad sort of controlling both me and my mom uh, i never got as close as as i would like to have met there were points in our life where we were poor and uh we lived with our my grandparents they, for a number of years with each of them so i did get to know them at a young age which was uh, important um but uh after they had passed not really close and i and i certainly at least with my mom's parents i i wish i would have got to spend more time with them but my dad definitely put up a wall between keeping them out a lot more so than than his family but he kept pretty much everybody out but especially them and my mom's brother you know um my mom's brother is gay and and has been in a, a stable relationship for I don't know forty forty years now. I have to check what the date is. I don't know. And and to me, like I've known his partner Jim for since some of my earliest memories are are with both of them being at the uh, the um, Christmas and stuff like that. Uh, Howard and Jim would come to Howard is my mom's brother, but that would be the only engagement because my dad also was homophobic. And so it was just always like a bit of a, a an extra wall there mm. and saying things about them. Or, um, this, it became 
difficult to really have a, a relationship or get get to know them as much as I would have liked to because they're 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 lovely people and, and like they, talk about love right forty I mean, that, years that, yeah you know and they have they've stuck by each other and and really supported each other and and in some ways it's like well, being around them more is like the perfect role model for for what love is supposed to be right um but you know, that just didn't happen so my engagement with extended family is uh, uh limited unlike um you know, I, I'm, I'm getting more of that experience with abby's family because their their extended family is is they're they're close you know right right um you do so many things like you're composing music and you're gigging and now you're teaching and new york is definitely like hustle culture everybody's got four different things that they do how do you balance it it's hard i mean some of that is a necessity of modern living and it used to be 30 years ago, you could have a career in one place. You could have been just a session musician and or not just, but I mean, that could have been your focus. You go and you play on, on records or TV commercials or TV shows, films. That would be your job. Maybe you play some gigs for fun. But a lot of the industry has been deteriorated so much that it's really hard to just do one thing. So if you're going to do it sessions, you also have to do gigs and then you might have to do some tours and you're gonna have to teach and you're gonna have to do it's a lot it's all like that um or you have to be diversified in order to keep steady income so uh, I, I guess i learned that and i had a lot of interest in a lot of places and i was able to to execute them so i, I naturally just kind of found work in them uh but it's uh it, it, it some of it's just out of uh, necessity although i like all those things um, I've definitely gone down some paths more than others just to uh, to facilitate making a, a, a full-time living as an artist in New York. Right. I, if you're going to do a bunch of things, it helps to like most or all of them. Yeah, they all feed each other. I mean, I don't really see them now as being so separated. So the, when I'm teaching my college students, I'm, I'm that information is related to my the own research that I've done for myself or continue to do for myself. And uh, if I teach a, a younger student, it's uh, it sometimes makes me reevaluate my approach to an instrument. And so although they look like on paper, they're, they're different skill sets in my mind because of the, the blogs and the podcasts and the teaching I do. And I'm always gathering information. So any of these experiences I have allows me to further my progress as a musician artist and it also allows me to, to share that with other people. So I'm looking to learn as much as I'm looking to share. I always have my antennae up and I'm just like, ooh, this is a new situation. How does this work? What's going on here? Right. Is it is it interesting being a professor now? Do you do you have like a tweed jacket that you throw on or whatever to just get that professor look? I have a, I, a, there's a punk store that I like to shop at a lot because I'm very much into early first wave and hardcore punk. Uh, they actually have some really cool Brit mod clothing, and and uh, Abby got me this uh, this sort of punk in, inspired argyle sweater. So that's me bridging that gap. It is it's it's professor ish, but it's all got a little punk edge to it. So <laughs> kind of like riding that line, you know. <laughs> right on. All right, I got one more question for you. Sure. And, uh, you've spoken about anxiety before. Um, you talk a lot about really liking being stimulated by things when 
I guess it's a two-part question. One, are there moments when you just want to like take a step back and chill? And when you do want have those those moments, what do you do to do that? That's been a real struggle for me. So I think prior uh, to even this year, that was not something I was able to do at all. It got to a point where my baseline anxiety, where I was like, I think I'm okay, would probably be like DEFCON 5 for some people. So I just had to to come to terms with like, this is not, not good. I can't live my life this way. And so I started taking anxiety medication and I was nervous and held off for years. I was afraid it was going to affect my creativity because I know some people it affects it. And Mm -hmm. I guess, um, I'm, I'm what some people, I guess would label uh, prolific, meaning I guess in the sense that like I could just continuously write music like nonstop if I was given the opportunity I just constantly am creative. Um, and I got into the that habit a lot because I was writing for a lot of TV shows and stuff. And sometimes that name in that game is how quickly can you put out music, right? Um, like I worked on that um, uh, a, a horror podcast, uh, and like it was like the sort of thing where it was like, how much can you deliver? So I'm delivering like five cues and like slightly over twenty four hours. Like that's like the speed of the business sometimes. So, um. So I didn't want anything to tamper with that. And I, I held off and was considering it for a long time, but I was really nervous about that affecting it. But then I tried it and it was like an instant life changer. Uh, it didn't take away my creativity at all. In fact, it helped my focus and my concentration. Uh, it helped everything. It was kind of, uh, I was at that moment where I was like, wow, I wish I was taking this for many years mm-hmm. it, for me it really shifted a lot of things and for the first time without using alcohol i was able to relax and i think i was self-medicating a lot with alcohol to try to just kind of take the heat down a little bit right so it was just a, a small um small flame instead of a full out like bonfire right right so um i started to do things that we're relaxing. I'm still not good at relaxing. I don't have any hobbies. Like my hobbies are reading classical scores. So I'll, you know, open up a, a, um, a Bach chorale or a, a, a composition from Arnold Schoenberg, or I'm reading Bill Evans um, transcriptions to see how he's voicing chords or uh, that's like, my or reading theory books like i have a real thing for reason reading music theory books like i'm on like my fifth counterpoint book so i consider that uh relaxing sometimes i'm laying in bed doing that and abby seems to think that's not relaxing <laughs> she might be right and I'm, i i bake sometimes and my okay. mom has been teaching me her recipes and sometimes i find that relaxing but i i find it hard to just sit and watch tv i'm trying to learn how to do that um to just get better at that and as the anxiety is sort of calming down i'm finding that i'm able to do that for longer periods of time where i just like sit down and and watch tv like usually in the past like my mind just has to be working and solving puzzles and busy and working yeah i got a nintendo switch to uh as a distraction as a way to have something to do to allow myself like that isn't for like some goal because usually it's my mind's like, I can't waste time. I have to learn this new concept about how Bella Bartok composed music. I need to learn this now. There's not much time left in life, you know, and my mind is always doing that. And so playing Nintendo is sort of a departure for me because I'm doing something that doesn't have any real like life value in it in the sense of like goal, right? Except for 
solving Zelda or something, right? Literally just like wasting time, but in a good way. So right. I've been trying to do more things like that, but um, that's been challenging to to adjust and, and get into that because uh, in the environment, it's uh, it's it wasn't a relaxing place to be. So relaxing wasn't something that uh, I I never took vacations before I got in a relationship with Abby. Never in my life, and so uh, vacations and uh, relaxing has been a, a later in life thing that I'm trying to adapt more and more. And, uh, and I feel like it's, it's, it's happening more and more thanks to all the, the things I have now in place to assist with that, you know? That's awesome. And I think it's really important. I, I saw the pictures of you uh, on vacation uh, maybe a month or so ago. And I'm like, look at Mark hanging out on the beach. I didn't take any music theory books. We didn't take any instruments. And I will admit I did download Tchaikovsky's book on theory and read a little <laughs> bit when I was there, but like mostly not too much though. I, I waited at least four days in five days in before I read anything about it. And I still think it was fairly casual reading, but, uh, but most of the time was just us on the beach and then going to the hot tub and, you know, and, and going to dinner, like completely like disarmed, which uh, was, it was amazing, you know? It's super important, man. You gotta gotta do a little bit more of that just for the sake of balance. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm starting to see that now. I'm trying to implement it more. I, I'm starting to understand and appreciate it more now in, in this part of my life. Good, good deal, man. Also, not right. seeing it as like a, a definitive end, right? Like, like it's just a continuous journey rather than it yeah. being an end goal that you have to get to of a certain level. You know? Yeah. And I do this as well. It's like, okay, well, I'm not going to pause until I do this thing, this thing, this thing, X, Y, Z, and this other thing. Um, and while I do think it's important to set goals, um, it's it's also important to just relax. Like you need to recharge, to, particularly as you get older. We're not we're not the energizer bunnies we used to be. Um, and it's, it's important not just for our bodies to relax. It's important to find things to get our brains to relax. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so Very true. Particularly for active minds, anything that can maybe slow that down for a little bit, whether it is a video game or reading a book, maybe not a music theory book, but different strokes <laughs> for different. Thank you so much, Mark, for taking the time out of your schedule. And thank you for being so open. And uh, I, I really appreciated hearing your story again, because we've talked about it privately. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope that other people can hear what you're talking about and ap apply that to themselves. Uh, you can find Mark on Instagram at guitarist underscore Mark underscore Marshall. Mark does a lot of interesting musical things that, again, go way above my uh, very limited head of musical comprehension. Uh, you can also check out Mark's podcast. It is called Anatomy of Tone. You can find it wherever podcasts exist. And uh, Mark is a special guy, and I hope you enjoyed listening to him talk. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. 
Uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill, or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, Uh, follow me on social media, like I said, uh, follow our Patreon, or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod you get access to exclusive episodes you get episodes a little earlier than the general public you get a cool ass sticker lots of stuff once again patreon.com slash detoxicitypod quick shout out to calvin williams for providing the music and uh doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace